When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Monday, August 23rd, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, I'm joined by Dion Dion Rabowin and 42 Macro founder Darius Dale. Here's what we are looking at right now. The risk on trade return today, pushing U.S. equities higher. The S&P 500 advanced about 1%. The Dow gained over 1.5% led by tech and the Dow up three-fourths of a percent. Bond yields edged lower, the 10-year at one 0.25%. And crude snapped its losing streak. U.S. crude futures were up nearly 6%. And Brent also moved higher. Dion, these moves came against a batch of pretty disappointing PMI numbers. Yeah, you know, we got the numbers out of Europe and Japan last night. Today, we got the U.S. Uh, US PMI missing expectations. Still positive, though, over 60. That was a lot more than we could say for Japan and the Eurozone and the U.K. missing really badly. Uh, Japan, on the services sector side, the number was the lowest in about 15 months. So really some pretty negative data in terms of the global growth story. But, Maggie, I know you're looking at Bitcoin, where the things are looking a little bit more up. I think a lot of our viewers are looking at Bitcoin back over 50,000 today, up 72% from that record low. That's right, Dara. It's that record low in July. Taking out that level has a lot of people looking at the chart, seen as a bullish sign, and uh, now predicting a run back at those all-time highs. Darius, we're going to get to all of it. But first, walk us through this market action that we're seeing today. What are your charts telling you? Not too hot, not too cold. It's Goldilocks, baby. Come on. Uh, so yeah, in terms of the market response to the uh, the disappointing PMI data, and again, it was quite disappointing across the board. Um, so Australia, Japan, uh, Germany, France, the Eurozone, UK, and US all released their data today, and every single time series decelerated on a month-on-month basis. You had on the manufacturing side, you had a four-month low for the US, five-month low for the UK, uh, six-month low for Japan, France, Germany, and Eurozone, and then a 14-month low for Australia. On the services side, and every single services PMI was lower than their manufacturing counterpart, Delta variant. Um, you had a two-month low for Germany, Eurozone, four-month low for France, six-month low for the UK, eight-month low for the US, and a 15-month low for Australia and Japan. I say that to say this. What does it matter? Well, it's telling you, the, you saw the market response today, and two, there's two things really driving the market response. One, there's an expectation that tapering will be incrementally delayed at the margin relative to the expectations that were that were baked into the cake coming into today. And then secondarily, uh, we were t- joking about this prior to the show, but to borrow a lyric from our friend Britney Spears, I mean, it's oops, OPEX did it again. You know, so like, every single time we have these sell-offs into monthly OPEX throughout this summer, you've seen a pretty uh, meaningful rise in the, in the week following. So in May, we had a 1.2% rise in the S&P 500. June following the OPEX, we had a 2.7% rise. In July, we had a 2% rise. So guess what? This is the week falling up X. Pretty much doesn't matter what we get in data terms, but I would argue, as we've argued all along, that bad news is good news for risk assets for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. Darius, 
It does seem like the market really isn't responding to this data the way you would normally think it would. But as you talk about OPEX, uh, you talk about BTFD, buy the effing dip. Uh, is the market just in this stance where you know anything can happen and you know we're still going to keep rocketing higher? Or do you think we get to a point where tapering starts to matter, where some of this negative data starts to matter? Because I know you've been watching this for a while, and some of your models have been saying that we really ought to expect a slowdown coming here. Yeah, we, we are firmly engaged in the slowdown. By, by the month of September, most of the economies that we maintain models for will be de uh, displaying trending deceleration on the growth and inflation front. So that that we are we are definitely part in that part of the process. However, when you backtest it carefully, as we've done at 42 Macro, the, the, the speed with which we're decelerating is is not bearish for asset markets. Mm -hmm. So if you want some something to, to 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 tank asset markets and risk assets, you need a much more negative catalyst than a tapering announcement that says we're going to start buying less bonds at the end of the year. <laughs> like that to me is not, it's really not the bearish catalyst that I think investors are hoping it is. And when I say they're hoping it is, you know, we can, our, our analysis of the volatility in options markets continues to show an investor consensus that is incredibly bearish. And if you look at the relationship between implied 30 day at the money put implied volatility relative to the local realized volatility regime, that mean is around 30 something percent for the 33 main you know, core ETF exposures that we track, that we all you know, traffic in. And so that continues to suggest that there's an investor consensus that's pretty well hedged from a net exposure perspective. And then when you look at some of the more sort of idiosyncratic things to our uh, signaling process, uh, whether you look at our global macro risk matrix, where half of the 42 indicators in the matrix are neutral, and you, know, you look at the amount of total signals that coming out of that model, it's only in the 26th percentile of that time series going back to the start of 1998. Those to me are, if you combine those two signals with what I just said about the options market, it screams that there's a buy side consensus out there that's not out over its ski tips in terms of risk taking, and it's not out over its ski tips in terms of its net exposure, which means you probably don't have the, 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 the tender that you need, the, the tindling that you need to have a meaningful uh, correction in risk assets. You know, Darius, it's interesting because we do see people still, I mean, obviously things are changing and, and everything you can't move away because we've seen sentiment swing really sharply, but you've got these, some people are still holding on to this idea that growth is going to rebound. You'll hear them say that, you know, Delta's peaking. It's showing up now in these PMI reports, but we saw China resort, re reported zero net cases. There's a sense from even the health officials, Gottlieb was talking today, it's ugly in the South, but maybe it's peaking. I mean, if you're trying to, if you think growth is slowing on the back of that, what's to say we won't rebound and we'll see some of those taper fears come back to the, to the forefront? Yeah, we're very much we're very much likely to rebound, particularly in something like services PMIs in the month of September. That is that, that's you could almost take that to the bank. However, is that rebound the start of a new trend higher in growth and a new trend higher in inflation? Which I would argue are two very important dynamics that you need to have bond yields go up on a trending basis, to have cyclical sectors and style factors lead the equity and credit markets higher on a trending basis. You can get a bounce, but is are we talking about a new trend? Or are we talking about a one month? A one-off sort of um, you know kind of blip on the radar, but what is very clearly emerging as a as a real real obvious yeah. negative trend across most uh, high-frequency economic data sets. Mm. Mm. And Darius, I know you wrote about this in your morning note that the potential for us to go in one of two directions, which is what you talked about that peak. Or if we just find ways to function within the virus, right? Like it's just always here, but we're doing different things. Talk to me about what that tells us about. Policy, because it does seem like you know the Fed can't 
do more to be accommodative here. At least it seems like they can't. Um, It seems like President Biden and the Democrats may be out of bullets in terms of big spending packages. So how could maybe one of those two scenarios change the state of policy on both the fiscal side and the monetary side? Yeah. So let me answer that question two ways. One, the pandemic is now an endemic. I think it's just it's yep. a matter of time before everyone realizes that. I think the the you know kind of the, I wouldn't consider myself one of them, but certainly the smartest guys in the room that figured this out months ago, if not quarters ago, certainly have all gotten to that conclusion. And so that likely means that sort of whatever we have, whatever the Federal Reserve does, particularly the hawkish members, right? You got Kaplan, Bostic, Bowler, and Clarita, you know, kind of and, and on mm-hmm. Nestor George out there, kind of you know singing the praises of tapering, and I would argue very unnecessarily because it's very unlikely that we get back to anything that resembles 2019 services sector demand and, and output um, on our, you know, any, anytime soon. I mean, we got to tackle the pandemic, and the reality is it might not ever get tackled. It might just be something that we have to learn and live with as a society. So that's kind of my first statement on, on Fed policy. You know, they, they don't need to be in a hurry. Uh, my second statement is that even if they're not in a hurry and we just have a September tapering announcement and they start actually reducing the pace of ATCHA purchases, let's call it in November, December, January, you'll pick your poison there. Their policy is actually going to get easier in the next two to three months from a net liquidity perspective anyway, because Secretary Yellen is breaching, is about to bump up against the debt ceiling, and, and she's going to run out of the ability to actually incremental, uh, incrementally issue uh, new Treasury supply. Um, the reduction in Treasury supply, I would argue, really over the past couple of months has been a real boom for asset prices, particularly the defensive sectors and style factors that have led the market higher since the early part of June. You know, I, I want to drill down a little bit into the data today because we, we talked about it being disappointing. I thought it was a really interesting uh, details, especially coming from the UK, both in the UK and here in the US. There's a lot of conversations about frustrations around labor, right? Mm-hmm. We know the supply chain has been hitting manufacturing, but when you're looking at labor shortages, this is is an area that the Fed is so focused on when it comes to wage inflation and the inflation debate so key to what is going to happen here as to whether they think they can taper or not. I want to play you both a clip from Michelle Meyer. She's the head of U.S. economics at Bank of America. Listen to what she had to say about inflation. So I think that people want to kind of bucket into it. You're transitory, you're in the persistent camp. And it's, it's not one or the other, to be honest. Like, as you just said, you can't debate that there are a lot of components that have transitory inflation moves. And frankly, the report this week showed that. Think about rental car prices that skyrocketed and now they're declining. Used car prices flattening back out. Airline fares were down slightly, which I think is partly a a COVID story as well. It's happening earlier for that category. But it all, you know, you kind of make sense, right? You just look at the amount that it increased, you could assume some mean reversion. Um, So you kind of should look past that, right? We're getting to the point where transitory inflation becomes transitory disinflation, which might become transitory deflation. But that's not the real story, right? The story is what's happening under the hood, which is whether or not more persistent inflation is building. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And I just want to pick up on that. So she goes on to say, I do think we're seeing some evidence of that. There is some broadening out of inflation pressures 
uh, under their equivalent rent, for example. There's a big category that re represents this. It's much stickier inflation. Now, you can see, by the way, for viewers, you can see that full conversation available on Real Vision Essential. But Darius, I think it's interesting saying everybody wants to make it so black and white that it is either you are in the transitory camp or you are in the idea that this is persistent and we're going to see a, a higher period of inflation. It's not that clear cut to most people watching, maybe not folks in the Fed. I think especially when you're looking at the sort of near to medium term, longer term, I think there's a really compelling deflation or disinflationary story. But shorter term, medium term, you know, what are you tracking in terms of getting a handle on what the Fed's going to do? Yeah, that great, excellent question. And so before I even answer the question, let me let me sort of take a step back and, and, and remind viewers, when we have conversations about economic data, what's been reported, where it's going, you know, cyclical versus secular, there's always two camps that investors fall into. And I think it's really important for everyone to understand that the level of the data is not the same thing as the rate of change of the data. Mm -hmm. And so going to your question specifically, I do believe that both parts of the question are, are correct in the sense that the rate of change of the data is transitory. It's peaking and it's about to decelerate pretty sharply over the next 12 months. Um, however, it's not going to decelerate to a level that is consistent with the previous you know, cycles in, in terms of inflation. The stationary mean of most inflation time series in the U.S. economy has transposed itself higher. And what I mean by that is we're going to be oscillating around levels, you know, for headline CPI, for instance, you know, the stationary mean was somewhere around one and a half percent in the post-crisis era. That's probably closer to two and a half, three percent now. And so that is a big deal in terms of the level of inflation that investors have to price in and ultimately sort of you know, spread that risk across asset classes is going to be higher over the long term. However, from the perspective of you know, our process is born out of rate of change, it, it really anchors on the trending rates of change of growth and inflation to predict asset returns. And the reality is, is, is we're, we're at a cyclical peak in inflation. And when you look at things like trim mean PCE inflation in the, in the twos, you look at median CPI on annualized basis is still shy of three. You know, core PCE is decelerating on annualized basis. There's so many things that are telling you that the rate of change of inflation is about to peak and roll, or is peaking and rolling. Hmm, that's super interesting, Darius, because I think that gets lost so much when we have this conversation about, you know, is inflation transitory? Is it not? Um, and you talk about it, you know, inflation may be transitory at 5%, but we get back down to 3% and maybe that's more where we're staying at. If you could talk to me a little bit about a 3% inflationary world, because that's something we haven't seen here in the U.S. in, what, 25 years? Yeah, no, I mean, on core PCE, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right, almost 30 years. And so that, to me, is a, is, a, is a big deal. Now, the core PCE inflation that we're currently observing is being largely driven by tradable goods prices that themselves are a function of the supply-demand imbalance from COVID. You know, it's all the usual suspects, so no need to rehash that. However, at, we are starting to see, you know, if you look at the kind of things like the NFIB job openings hard to fill uh, time series, the Jolt's Dobbs data, the spread between something like employee compensation relative to, to uh, capital out expenditures. You know, all these things are sort of kind of pointing you in a direction of a U.S. economy that is likely to be more inflationary than it has been. Now, I will say that I'll say that to say this: you know, the secular drivers of, of disinflation in the U.S. have not gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of globalization, in terms of you know the low labor force participation rate, the low velocity of money, all those things are still there. 
What's new now is this lurching left in fiscal policy that is now accompanying the persistent monetary easing that we've uh, received throughout the post-crisis era. That, I believe, is, is, it has, has a tail to it. Yeah. Dion, I'm glad you mentioned that we haven't seen this in a long time. We often talk about the fact that, you know, we have an investor class that has never known anything but easy money. We also have consumers who have never known anything but really, really low prices, cheaper prices all over. So when you're seeing any kind of inflation come through, I mean, it's just not something that anyone and anyone is used to. Uh, Darius, we have some questions coming in um, from our viewers. And, and one of them asks, can you talk about liquidity in the treasury market? We mean, can I talk about liquidity in treasury? Oh, sorry. Yes. And so the 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 Fed the Treasury is likely to breach the statutory debt ceiling, or I believe they breach it on September 30th. No, sorry, my apologies. The government runs out of financing on September yeah. 30th, which means they need to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government financed. It's very likely that the Treasury will bump up against the debt ceiling sometime between late September and early October. Yellen's probably got I don't know six weeks of of, of playing around with the numbers and playing around with the, the, the various um, facilities to keep the the government functioning through, let's call it mid to late November. But beyond that, there's we obviously have to see a resolution on the debt ceiling front and obviously on a continuing resolution front. Um, all that's going to be messy. But the reality is, in terms of how it's likely to impact asset markets, it's actually a net positive. Because again, you have the Federal Reserve still gobbling up $120 billion in, in paper, um, you know, $80 billion of which is the most pristine you know, collateral out there from a, from a hedge fund leverage perspective. And so that really does force investors down and out on the risk spectrum at the margins or at the bare minimum into the Fed's uh, money market, into the uh, overnight repo market. You know, some of that cash has obviously gone in equity. Some of that cash has obviously gone into bonds. But the reality is the world is awash with liquidity and these, the, we're not slowing yeah. fast enough for it to matter. If we start to really slow down, then, then it'll actually matter to the downside for risk assets. But for now, it's again, it's Goldilocks. That's what our market regime now casting process has been saying. And that's exactly what the markets have been telling you for the past couple of months. Yeah. And I think what's really fascinating, too, is this move that we've gotten over the past month or so in Bitcoin, pushing it back above that $50,000 level. I mean, I think a lot of folks saw Bitcoin as a hedge when, you know, inflation was running out of control or, you know, as a potential hedge for volatility in the market. And now we're seeing even in this kind of Goldilocks environment that that you've token that you've talked about, we're still seeing Bitcoin rise and really take off. With the 10-year treasury at 1.25%, with the Nasdaq and I believe the S&P at all-time highs, Bitcoin still sky and higher. What does that tell you about the markets overall and about what Bitcoin is and what investors should be thinking about it? Yeah, no, I think it tells you that the world is awash with liquidity. I mean, our our volatility adjusted momentum signal went bullish or went from bearish to neutral, not even bullish yet. It's about you know, it'll go bullish if a 10-day realized vol goes above 70%. It's neutral now. When it since that neutral signal is up about 25%. I mean, this is this is what's happening when there's so much excess liquidity in the system. The world that we're not the, the real economy doesn't need capital as much as it did, you know, six months ago, and you know, at the margins, you know, so it's certainly at the margins in terms of the you know, the marginal growth rate of, of the demand for for capital, and so that capital is going somewhere as the Fed continues to you know um, sort of you know pump liquidity into the system in the context of a Treasury Department that's not issuing as much paper, and so that has real world impact. And real world impact, I mean, through the lens of asset markets. So going back to Bitcoin, I mean, you know, I don't want to put a round number price target out there because I tend to make fun and more than I participate in them. But why is this thing not going to be at 100K by the end of October? Like someone has to tell me why it's not. 
mean, certainly. I mean, it could be 100K by the end of September. I mean, okay. I'm dead serious when I say that. Like, if we stay in Goldilocks from today through the end of September, hell, through the end of October, Bitcoin will be north of 100K, I guarantee you. Well, there are a lot of people that are going to be excited to hear that, and I'm sure who agree with you, Darius. Let me let me ask you a question. When you're talking about all this excess liquidity, just you know, pushing people out on the uh, on the risk profile, if we're in a Goldilocks scenario, wouldn't that be exactly when the Fed wants to try to get out of this corner it's boxed itself into potentially permanently? I mean, if it is, I mean, if if they're if it's not going to create a situation, they a lot of people point to the fact that listen, this isn't working the way they wanted to anyway. It's not targeting, you know, the the it parts has. of the economy, right? And and it never has. And they arguably have been trying to look for an escape route for ten years. I mean, wouldn't this be the time they can do it when they actually have, um, you know, something coming on the fiscal side as well, which they had been lacking. For the last decade, I mean, I've heard so many times that you know people say, and and Federal Reserve, for, for, former Federal Reserve officials say, they've got to end this. They've got to try to get out of it. Wouldn't now be the time if it's not working anyway? Well, now would be the time. So yes, now would be the time if all you cared about—not you, but the the, the the hypothetical person asking the question—only cared about asset markets. Obviously, we're pinned up at the highs in both price and valuation terms for most serious assets. You know, uh, credit spreads and you know pinned at the lows. So yes, you can make that argument. However, we are not in Goldilocks from an economic perspective. We are decelerating growth. We are decelerating inflation. Those are unequivocal facts at this point. Um, and so the, the 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 Federal Reserve has to be cognizant of two things: one, its impact on asset markets and the formation of asset bubbles or the destruction of asset bubbles, and then it also has to have uh, obviously a keen eye towards what's happening in the real economy. And in the real economy, particularly in the labor market, you still have a labor force participation rate for prime working age adults. That's at, I don't know, 77.8%. That's down from like 80.2% prior to the pandemic. I believe there's about three, you know, just north of 3 million people, excess people were unemployed relative to the start of the pandemic. You know, so this labor market is tight in certain places, but is actually quite uh, quite soft in a number of other places. So they they have not achieved their, their mandate with respect to employment. And so the, the concept of Pulling back on liquidity now for you know just so you can get to some you know low rate of purchases just so you can have some flexibility on the policy rate front to me I think that's the wrong discussion to have mm. the proper discussion to have should be looking around observing the world as it is and saying hey growth is no longer accelerating like it was inflation mm. is no longer accelerating at the pace it was and oh by the way we we have this delta variant that could very easily turn into another variant I was joking last week I was yeah. like we're gonna run out of uh, Greek letters. You know, like, and so the Fed needs to be acknowledging yeah. the fact that the the world has changed since they uh, since the hawkish dot plot revision in June. It has. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And another thing that's changed is we got Jackson Hole coming up this week, the Fed's big you know, global central banker retreat. 
And now the elephant in the room, they've had to cancel the in-person event. They're now only glowing, going virtual for this event. And, uh, you know, you can't not address that. You can't not talk about the Delta variant when it's changed the entire scope of your event. Uh, we're going to get a speech from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Friday that coincidentally will be right after the PCE numbers, uh, the Fed's favored measure of inflation, come out that morning. What are you expecting to hear from the Fed, from Jerome Powell, from some of those other central bankers who are gathered in Wyoming? And is it something that are you expecting to hear anything that's going to change your market thesis or that's going to change how you're positioned or how you're sitting in the market, Darius? Uh, it's unlikely we hear it's unlikely they announce anything that sort of is directly correlated to policy at Jackson Hole. Now, they might talk around policy to some degree. Um, but I would the most the number one thing I'm expecting to hear is more confirmation of what I just said, which is look we don't need to be in a hurry to remove accommodation, right? We, we've already agreed to agree that this is we should be having this accommodation, whether or not it's a ridiculous number. I, I personally think 110 billion dollars a month mm. is a ridiculous number, but we're already here. So like let's just acknowledge the fact that we're already here. Why are we changing this? Like give me a real cogent you know thoughtful reason for us to change this policy. And the reality is. From my perspective, having forward-looking models on growth and inflation that say inflation is going to be 150 basis points lower in 12 months, to me, I think they can wait. And so, to me, I, I think the most incremental thing I think investors can hear, because I'm already expecting them to say this, is, hey, we can wait. We don't need to be in a hurry. Hey, Bullard, chill out, dude. You're, you're bugging everybody out. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see something along those effects. Well, one thing we can count on Fed officials to do is leave themselves the most wiggle room possible. I mean, the idea that we're going to get any clarity is probably completely false. We have um, some some more questions coming in um, from Gren Darius. Any comment on the VIX ratio at this time? VVIX VIX ratio. Yeah, no, it's still bullish from the perspective of our volatility just momentum signal. Uh, it is an unequivocal sell signal for risk assets when it breaks down to bearish, but it's still very much bullish. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, we've got another question coming in from TC. Uh, what happens when there's a shortage of T-bills? RRP will only work until it doesn't. Uh, I mean, we'll find out. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the maximum size of the reverse repo facility can be. Why not two trillion? I mean, I don't know. Like, we're gonna, yeah. Either, either, why not three? Yeah. Why not two or three? Or here's a thought. Why not go buy uh, junk bonds or, or uh, S&P 500 futures? Like, I, I don't know the answer to these questions. Other than the fact that, hey, look, the fact that we're asking the question tells you how much excess liquidity is out there. And so if you're bearish out here, as, as I would argue, the investor consensus is not positioned bearishly, but they're not positioned bullishly either. They're very neutral. There's a lot of neutral neutrality. If you look at the, um, the CFTC futures and options data, the commitment to traders report, there's about 26 markets that I would consider to be risk assets featured in that report. And they have a mean in terms of the speculative net length. They have a mean three-year Z-score of 0 0.2. Like not like just literally like everything's like Goldilocks right now. There's so much liquidity, but there's no positioning to say that liquidity is actually being utilized. You know, people aren't out on their ski tips taking risks. And I'm arguing that as long as they're not out on their ski tips taking risks and we keep getting all this liquidity pumped in the system, the path of least resistance for asset markets is higher. Darius, when, when there's such a wide range of forecasts, more so for the bond market, you know, when we have, uh, and again, they're going to be adjusting as the week goes on and the Fed, you know, what comes out of the Fed may change this. But right now you have some people, you know, looking for the tenure at 1%. You have some people looking at the tenure at 2%. I mean, they're not, there's not a lot of consensus when it comes to that. 
given that people might want to try to protect themselves, might want to try to take out some insurance, but you know, do we have to be careful if people are overpaying for that? What are you seeing going on on that front? Yeah, so what what are the most more incremental things that we've done with respect to our portfolio construction guidance at 42 Macro was reduce our our exposure to duration risk at the margins. Not because we think, you know, we agree with this this what I would consider to be a pretty ridiculous view that um, interest rates are going to two percent over the intermediate term. That to me is a, is is not a probable outcome. However, it's looked from a technical perspective, and certainly it's it's looking like that the ten year has bot formed a pretty formidable bottom in the you know sort of low one twenty range. Mm-hmm. So you could see um, you know just using the ten year again as a proxy, you could see bond yields trade in a range. You know, let's call it one twenty to one forty one fifty on the high end. I don't know one fifty might be a stretch. We currently have one thirty three actually is the upper boundary of our probable range. Uh, but that could obviously move higher. And so, you know, I think the, you know, kind of the biggest question that was also was was the biggest part of the question, in my opinion, was part of the premise. There's a wide range of probable outcomes on growth, mm-hmm. on inflation, on when the accommodation is going to be removed, what could potentially come out, what Frankenstein might come out of DC in terms of the budget resolution, the fiscal infrastructure plan, the debt ceiling debacle. I mean, I'm sure there's something else I'm missing. That, like, it's a lot of stuff going on. Right, like, and so the the range of probable outcomes is incredibly wide, and we're actually observing that in our system right now. We we, we have our grid regime system: Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. Those are the four uh, distinct states that both asset markets and economies can be in. And right now, in terms of the dispersion that we're observing amongst the regimes, it's as narrow as it's been all year. I mean, you could go one way or another, and I think that dispersion, that lack of dispersion, rather, in terms of our signaling process is actually a signal in of itself that people aren't on their ski tips because there's no obvious bet to make. And when there's no obvious bet to make, gross exposure across the buy side comes down, net exposure tightens up, and people just aren't out there taking a ton of risk. Darius, I know you're going to tweet some of those charts out too, and and we will post them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Darius, I want to say because of where you're at in this, you know, you talk about the regime, the potential for changes, downside surprises, upside surprises. One thing that I've been watching lately, and I'm, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is commodity prices. We had a very rough week for oil, a very rough week for copper, uh, and now they've all seemed to kind of be bouncing back. You get this upturn in gold today, up over one percent. Copper bouncing back up two percent. Are commodities telling you anything? Thing about the market, or is that just reinforcing the, your theme in, in terms of not being too hot, not being too cold? Yeah, no, I think it's a lot of the latter um, with respect to crude oil in particular. So it's currently it, it had broke down to bearish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal early last week. It is still bearish even through with this bounce. For oil to recapture its bullish former bullish BAM state. The price needs to get above $68 a barrel on WTI, and the OVX, oil volatility index, needs to break down below 37. It's currently at 38.40 now. So this big bounce we saw didn't get you to where you needed to go from the perspective of those two numbers. So keep the, everyone watching, keep those signal lines close, because if we don't see that follow through over the next three to four you know, trading days, it's telling you that oil is, is forming a real true bearish uh, VAM setup that actually be investable on the short side. So that again, that to me is funda- very fundamental. The world is slowing now. Could you? I would expect oil to bounce alongside services PMIs uh, next month. However, if it doesn't bounce, that's just telling you more of the same. Look, this world is slowing. If, if the Fed doesn't do anything stupid with respect to tapering, it's bullish. However, if they start tapering and talking like Buller, you know, with you know rate hikes, it, 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 this guy's talking about rate hikes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Somebody said, can corral him. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Off topic there. But no, my, my point is that this is a very manageable setup from the perspective of investors. You got the liquidity when sales at your back. The economy is not slowing fast enough for you to get freaked out from the perspective of you know credit spreads blowing out or volatility blowing out. And so the path of least resistance should be to the upside. The only thing that can derail that, in my opinion, is a Federal Reserve that is just kind of out to lunch with respect to tapering. And we're gonna and we're gonna find out and talk about that all week and find out a lot more about it as they head into their virtual, now virtual Jackson Hole meeting. We're gonna leave it there. Darius Dale and Dion Rabowen, thank you so much for being with us today. Great conversation. And of course, it's going to continue over on the Real Vision app. We'll see you again this time tomorrow. Thanks so much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.